You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. We're going to move on now and continue through our sermon series through the book of Galatians, which is all about freedom, right? The, the freedom we have in Christ and, and how to live in it. And, and this is, this is the, the, the primary message the Apostle Paul is trying to remind the Galatian community of. Unfortunately, some false teachers had, had come into these, these communities in Galatia and, and were refuting not only the gospel that, that Paul had brought to them, um, but they're refuting Paul himself, uh, specifically his calling as an apostle, which in this case means one that's called by Jesus. So um, it's that particular issue that, that Paul addresses here in the last chapter, uh, last half of chapter 1. Because he knows that before the recipients of his letter are going to trust what he says about Jesus, they have to be able to trust him as someone who has authority from Jesus. And so that's what Paul is is discussing in uh, the passage we're about to read. So if you want to turn with me to Galatians 1, starting at verse 11, we're going to go to uh, verse 24. Galatians 1, 11 to 24. So this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the churches in Galatia, and he says to them, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Awesome. Uh, In in 1997, some of you weren't born yet, which is crazy. Um, But I remember it well. In uh, a book came out which you might be familiar with, and it was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And uh, it, hit the, it hit the shelves of, you know, awkward laugh, it hit the shelves of Christian bookstores everywhere. And it was written by a guy named Joshua Harris, and as it flew off the shelves uh, faster than bookstores could stock it, it basically revolutionized the purity and dating scene in youth groups and churches across North America for many years following its release. And... While you could say Harris certainly meant well in writing the book, and maybe some found it helpful in his uh, alternatives to dating in the form of courting and, and setting boundaries and all that kind of stuff, the book unfortunately bred a culture within the church 
of judgment, of guilt, shame, stringent and controlling dating rules, and unhealthy views of relationships and sexuality, which caused major trauma and hurt for thousands of people, mostly girls, some that are still dealing with that hurt today. Joshua Harris, who's now a pastor, he actually recently apologized for the book and had it pulled from shelves completely for good. In fact, he, he had people write in letters about how the book had affected them or, or how people had used the book to control them. And he published that, and it's freely available on his website, and you can look that up. So he's repented of that, but he's not all to blame for this, for what happened with his book. I mean, first of all, did anyone actually take a second to ask who this guy was when he wrote the book? Harris himself admits that when he wrote it, he was young and had little experience with relationships, and the little experience he did have was negative. In other words, he wrote the book in reaction to his fear and hurt from, past, from a past relationship that ended badly. So that's already a red flag. He's writing with a skewed lens. He also admits in another one of his books, which he wrote years later, called Dug Down Deep, which is about the importance of studying the Bible, he mentions in that book that when he wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, he actually knew very little about theology or what the Bible says, which is why verses are taken out of context quite frequently in his book. But yet, Christians in North America everywhere basically like almost kept his book as an additional handbook to the Bible. Right? It's, it's anti-dating dogma basically, basically became a huge part of Christian culture. And in 2017, with regret, Harris himself addressed this when he says, I think that's where people get into danger. We have God's word. But then it's so easy to add all this other stuff to protect people, to control people, to make sure you don't get anywhere near that place where you could go off course. And I think that's where the problems arise. So this is, this is also what, what the Pharisees had, had done with the law of Moses. They, they added a bunch of rules to it so that it would protect them from getting anywhere near the place where they would break the law of Moses. They're adding more rules to protect themselves and to control others, right? And this is the same legalism that the, that the Judaizers were bringing into the churches in Galatia, saying you need to add all these rules to protect yourself and, and, to, and to control people, to act a certain way. And, and again, jo- Joshua Harris is, is, is admitting here that though he meant well, Though he was trying to protect, he actually added to God's word by offering up a new set of rules. And the crazy thing is that, that North American Christians adopted them eagerly. They adopted a subculture of legalism. They added rules and ideas to God's word with that book. But again, the thing is, Joshua Harris didn't force anyone to listen to him. Yeah, he wrote the book. He certainly didn't expect it to be this huge hit. But we, the Christian church, did the listening and reading part on our own. We took, without question, supposed biblical relationship advice from a teenager who hardly knew anything about relationships or about the Bible. That's crazy! We let him shape not only our opinions, but our worldview, our church culture, 
our idea about the sufficiency of the gospel and God's word, our personal lives. That's on us. And by us, I mean the church. I, I didn't read it. And hopefully we can, we can learn from that. And, and other times we do that. But simply put, we, we need to have discernment. We need to have discernment. And even better, when it, when it comes to matters of truth, God and, and faith and relationships, we need to learn from and look to qualified and trustworthy sources. This is, this is the case that Paul's making in the passage this morning. He's attempting to, to convince the Galatians that unlike the Judaizers who, who had come in with their set of rules and, and legalism and, and good intentions, sure, unlike them, he was actually a qualified and trustworthy source because Jesus himself had called him and revealed the, the gospel message to him, both through experience and through divine knowledge. And the, and the reality is, is that if there isn't Christ did call Paul, then, then we can't ignore what he says. Whether we like the sound of it or not, if it's God's divine word, then, then we need to pay attention to it above all else. But in, in the same way that Christians ate up by kissed eating goodbye because it sounded like a good idea at the time, I think, I think today we, especially, we need to be even more careful because in our post-truth culture, we often prefer just that which sounds good over what's actually true. We often prefer what's, what sounds good to, to me and what's preferable to me over what's actually true. And, and on that note, podcasts, some of you listen to podcasts, I listen to podcasts sometimes, they've become a, a popular source of information. And like I said, I enjoy them. But a, a couple of months ago while I was listening to, to a podcast, which is basically like the new talk radio, but people couldn't like, published them themselves on iTunes or whatever. Um, so I was listening to one of them, and, and um, it was one that had three or four people discussing subjects about faith and Christianity and topics relating to that. And, and while I was listening to it, I realized something. I have no clue who these people are. I don't know them at all. Not that I need to know them personally. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I mean is I, I didn't know their credentials. I didn't even know which voice went with which name. Uh, I didn't even know if they had any education or experience on these subjects that they're gi- giving their opinions about. I, I didn't know their backgrounds. And I especially didn't know their motivations. All I knew about them was that they had a popular podcast. So I asked myself, you know, why in the world am I listening to them or, 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 more importantly, putting any weight in what they're saying. Not that they said anything I disagreed with or anything strange or anything, but, but the fact remains, if I, if, I, if I don't know anything about them or how their worldview and opinions have, have been shaped, should I actually be allowing them to so easily shape mine? When it comes to subjects like, like God, faith, the gospel, salvation, the, the Holy Spirit, th- these, are, these are serious things. So too, then, should be the sources that shape our understanding of them. Alternatively, we, we can't just believe anything by someone that knows how to make a YouTube video or write a blog post or even, or even speak eloquently. Rather, on these matters, we need to look to trustworthy sources. And even then, we should have discernment. And yes, it's fine to get 
other opinions and to take off the blinders and to ask questions, but it's irresponsible and dangerous to look for answers from people who don't have the qualifications or even the right motivations to answer them. For example, would we trust just anyone on the, on the internet to, um, to invest our money or keep our money safe for us? No. We wouldn't. That's why we have bank accounts in reputable and legally insured banks, right? So if we wouldn't trust just anyone on the internet with our money, why then in the same way would we trust just anyone on the internet when it comes to matters of life and death? Unfortunately for us, we, we have a lot of good resources and, and teachers and apologists in Christian history. It's, it's, not, it's not hard to find good, trustworthy, and, and helpful information about Jesus and about faith and, and about the Bible. I, I've, I've got a lot of good and solid books in my office if you guys want to borrow them. But even with that in mind, the, the truth is that nothing and no one is as trustworthy than those who have received the divine word or divine inspiration from God himself. And we call that the Bible. Everything, everything we read or hear or study when it comes to matters of God and faith and salvation, all those things, including my sermons, should all be measured against God's word. Because it, it alone comes from the pens of those who were divinely inspired by God. And, and this is Paul's argument and defense here, not as an object of pride for him, but for the sake of the Galatians' freedom in Christ. Paul's reminding them that he didn't come to them with some man-made or made-up idea that he heard on some podcast, nor, nor, nor was it even a message that he learned from anyone, which we can assume was probably what the Judaizers were, were saying about Paul, saying, oh, he, probably, he just learned that from man, don't listen to him. But rather, Paul argues, he came to them with, with, with a calling and a message of good news directly from Jesus. Galatians 1, 11 to 12, he writes, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So first of all, if, if this gospel was man-made, and no offense to us humans or anything, um, but if it was man-made, it, it, would, it would be worthless to save us. That's the point of the gospel. We, we can't save ourselves, so Jesus came to pay the price in full for our redemption, for our freedom. Man-made religions usually place the emphasis on what we need to do. The gospel of Jesus Christ emphasizes what Jesus did, what he's done, his death for our sin, his grace freely given to all those who believe, his spirit poured, on, poured out upon us, right? And, and since it's not a man-made gospel, but from God, that also means that, that we can't pick or choose what we want it to be. We can't add to it or, or take away from it, like the Judaizers were trying to do. It's not customizable, right? It's, it's not up to us to decide what it is or, or what it isn't. The gospel is what it is, and it's all it needs to be. It's God's design. This is, this is one of the primary um, points that Paul's trying to make here, which, which we drew in last week a bit as well. He's, he's not interested in, in pleasing people or impressing people or, or preaching up a made-up gospel. All he cares about, even in the midst of persecution, is proclaiming the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ because he, he knows and has experienced that that's the only gospel that saves 
and sanctifies. And secondly, then, Paul wants them to recognize that, that his apostleship, his, his calling, isn't man-made either. And he wants them to know this so that they'll hear him out. They need to be convinced that Jesus actually appeared to him so that despite what the Judaizers are saying about him, they'll listen to him and take his message seriously. So his next, next task then is, is to prove this to them. And while apologetics can take many different routes, historical, archaeological, scientific, philosophical, theological, right? The, the list goes on and on and there's lots of it out there. But Paul decides here to defend his position by addressing a subject matter that the Galatians would have already been familiar with and could verify his past. As Warren Wiersbe writes, the best way for Paul to prove his point was to reach into his past and remind the Galatian churches of the way God had dealt with him. So Paul flashed on the screen three pictures of his past as evidence that his apostleship and his gospel were truly of God. So we're going to talk about those three pictures that that he gives the Galatians to prove that he's of God or from God. The the first picture he reminds them of is who he used to be. And who he used to be was a persecuting Pharisee. Galatians 1, 13 to 14, he writes, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Excuse me. So it was widely known among uh, early Christians and the Jewish community as well that, that Paul, who was also known as Saul, was one to be revered among Pharisees and one to be feared by the Christian church. As is documented in Acts and his other letters, he was one of the best students of a highly regarded and leading authority in the Sanhedrin named Gamaliel. And under his tutelage, Paul was rising quickly in the ranks of the Pharisees. And on top of that, he was also gaining notoriety as one who famously stood against those who claimed to be followers of Jesus. More than that, he was violently against them to the point of taking part in arrests, stonings, and other types of persecutions of the church, most notoriously known as the ringleader who held everyone's coats while they stoned Stephen to death for proclaiming the name of Jesus. What Paul's point here is is twofold. First of all, he's reminding them that that he's lived and experienced what it means to to put your faith in a pharisaical works and rules-based religious system. Again, the same one that the Galatians were getting pulled back into by the Judaizers. So Paul was one of the most was one of the best and most zealous Pharisees, and he was proud of it. But yet here he is now, he's standing against all of that, saying it's 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 useless, it's worthless, that it's slavery, it's not freedom, and and that should say something, right? And secondly, he's proven to them that if he'd wanted notoriety or, or, or to please man, he definitely wouldn't have switched sides because he already had that. He was rising in the ranks. People loved him and feared him. In other words, no one could now accuse him of, of trying to seek fame or pride or notoriety in his claim to be an apostle. That couldn't have been his motivation because the reality is, is that's, is, 
that that's exactly what he left behind to follow Jesus. So that's the first picture of his past that he reminds them of, which leads into the second, his conversion. Galatians 1, 15 to 17. I'll read that again. He says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So Acts, Acts 9 accounts the story of, of when Paul receives permission from the, the high council to head to Damascus for the purpose of arresting more Christians. And on his way there, this is what happened. Let me read it to you. Acts 9. 3 to 9, it says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So this, this is the story of his conversion that Paul's referring to when he's writing to the Galatians here. That Jesus came to him. That God revealed Jesus to him. Though he hated Christians and and hated the very idea of Jesus, still, by God's grace, he revealed his son to him, changed his heart, and called him. That's, That's amazing grace. And notice Paul's language here as well as he's writing to the Galatians. When he's talking about the times when he was a Pharisee, he's talking about himself, all the things that he did. But when he talks about his conversion, it's all about what God did. God had set him, before, set him apart before he was born. God called him by his grace. God revealed Jesus to him to forgive him and, and save him and send him to proclaim his name to the Gentiles. You see, you see the switch that happened? That's the difference between the Judaizers' false gospel and Paul's gospel. The Judaizers are saying it's all about what we do. It's all about what I do. And Paul's saying, no. It's all about what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. It's all about his grace. That's how and why we're saved. But beyond that as well, Paul's telling them this story to remind them that the the only thing that could have transformed his heart from a proud, Christian-killing Pharisee is the transforming grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That his life transformation on its own should be proof enough that Jesus really did appear to him. And in the same vein, and and more importantly, I would say, his conversion is also proof of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, That it has the ability to change and transform the heart of even the most foremost of sinners, which is how... Paul describes himself in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance 
which is also what he's arguing with the Galatians here, right? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Just think of it again. He, he's, he's on his way to arrest and probably kill Christians. And suddenly, he's one of them and intent on making them. And now he sees his conversion as God's will to be an example of the power of the gospel, because it is. And beyond that, let's not forget that he was a, a zealous Jew, and now he's ministering to the Gentiles. That would be unheard of. So nothing about Paul's life transformation here makes any sense. The, the only way to explain it is Jesus, his grace. In other words, Paul's conversion is, is really one of the greatest apologetics of the Christian faith. And this is why he ends the passage with this phrase, Acts, or, sorry, Galatians 1, 22-24. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Yeah, they did. Of course they did. You know, even when, when, when Paul ends up finally visiting the apostles in Jerusalem, they, they were hesitant to, to meet him or believe him. They thought, oh, he's, you know, he's a spy coming in to destroy us. At, at first, they couldn't believe someone like Paul had truly been saved, even though they themselves had known Jesus' power and seen his miracles firsthand. That's how crazy Paul's conversion was to them. And upon finally being convinced and accepting what God had done in Paul's life, that, that his grace was powerful enough to transform even the heart of the one who hated them more than anyone else, of course they glorified God. Of course they glorified God. And just, and just a side note here, this, this isn't the main point that Paul's making, but still I think it's, it's worth mentioning. That while Paul's testimony is unique in that he saw the risen Christ, we, we need to be encouraged as well that, that our testimonies and the way Jesus has changed our hearts, no matter, no matter how simple it is or how, or how crazy it was, that's not the point. Our, our testimonies have the, the ability to cause people to glorify God for what he's done in us, for what he's done in you, how he's changed your heart. Your testimony is a great way to prove the effectiveness and reality of the gospel. So share it. Be ready to give an account of of account for why you are who you are, for why you believe, for how Jesus has changed you. That was just a side note. Anyways, to, to prove his point further, Paul reminds them that, that after his conversion, he didn't even visit or converse with any notable Christian leaders for, for many years. It's like the opposite of having an alibi. Right? Instead of proving that he was with a bunch of people, he had to prove that he didn't consult with anyone notable after he was called by Jesus and, and after he was given his sight back. And Paul's point here is this, that, that he didn't hear the gospel truth from man. In fact, he says, in, in most Christian communities, or in a lot of the Christian communities, no one even knew him by, by his face. They weren't even familiar with him. They had just heard about him. 
So if no one knew him, if no one taught him the gospel, again, the only explanation is that, that, that he learned it through divine revelation. And again, this, this, this calling from Jesus, this divine revelation, is what would qualify him to be an apostle in the same league as, as Peter and John and the rest. And um, that also means then that, that his message isn't, isn't fake, that it's real, it's alive, it's, it's truth. It should be taken seriously. So he goes on, he reminds them that he went to Arabia. Some, some say he possibly went to Mount Sinai where Moses heard from God. But who knows? And then after that, he went back to Damascus. And it was actually in Damascus that his life was threatened for preaching the gospel. So that's when he had to be let down the wall of the, the city in a basket so he could escape with his life. So Paul went from persecutor of Christians to persecuted Christian, all on his own. So his conversion is is evidence of the reality and truth of the gospel and his divine calling as an apostle. But let's be honest for all the skeptics out there. This isn't enough proof, right? It should be, but... We have to acknowledge that many people in history have also claimed to have had visions from God or Jesus or some divine being, right? And some of them even invented their own religions based off of these supposed visions. So why is, why is Paul any different? And Paul addresses that. Unlike these other people who had these visions, Paul's divine revelation, first of all, doesn't invent a new religion or even change it. Rather, both his gospel and his calling that he received are actually verified and confirmed by other trustworthy sources. And this is the third picture he reminds the Galatians of. He, re- he reminds them that when he finally does meet up with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, they're in agreement with one another. Galatians 1, 18 to 19 says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who's that's another name for Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So he, ad- and he adds to this point in Galatians 2 when he says that when he met with the apostles again, they, they confirmed his calling to the Gentiles and they confirmed that the gospel message he was proclaiming was correct and on par with, with what they had learned. So in other words, the, the gospel that, that he received from the risen Christ and was preaching for years before talking to any other notable Christians lined up with the same gospel that Peter and the other apostles learned from Jesus. So so Paul's giving evidence after evidence after evidence. All this to say that that his gospel and his calling is trustworthy. And then finally, he he swears by it. Before God, he writes, I do not lie. But anything I'm writing to you, I do not lie. And he swears before God. That's a big deal. And what this means for the Galatians is that they should probably listen to Paul when he says that the gospel is all about Jesus, that it's all about his grace alone. It's all about freedom. And what this means for us is that we can also trust in the gospel and that we should take it seriously as well. We can be confident, too, that if the good news of Jesus Christ was, was capable of saving and changing the heart of a man like Paul, then it's certainly sufficient and capable of saving and transforming us as well, no matter how far we've gone, no matter what we've done. 
His grace is sufficient. We can stand on that, that rock as our foundation, as our, as our freedom, as our hope. We don't need to add anything to it or take anything away from it or do anything to earn it. And by it, we should be measuring everything else. Finally, as it, as it says in Ephesians 2, 4 to 9, I'm going to finish with this because it wraps everything up. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's all about Jesus. And we can rest in that and be confident in that. And let's remember that now as we receive communion together. First, I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing testimony that we read here in Paul's life. How by your grace, you turned him from a persecutor of Christians to one who, who made fishers of men, became a fisher of men, Lord, who, who wanted to tell people about Christ. That's such a, a crazy transformation and an amazing thing to think about. And, and, and it just exemplifies the power of the gospel that you freely have given to us through sending your son, Jesus Christ, to, to, to die on the cross for our sins, to conquer death through his resurrection, to, who, who fills us with his Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that, that, it, that, it, that you do all these things. And Lord, we acknowledge that you do all these things, that you set us free from the burden of having to, to earn any of it ourselves. You set us free from the burden of guilt and, and shame of, of, of rules. And you just draw us freely into your grace. We thank you so much for that, Lord. And we thank you that it, that is Paul's writing here that 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 gospel is trustworthy, that we can that we can trust in it. We can live by it. And for it, Jesus, we give you all the glory. We praise your name on account of what you've what you've done for Paul, what you've done in us, what you're doing in this church. We praise your name. Amen.